Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Today's episode is an interview with a man who lives in Ellensburg, Washington, who is just months shy of 100 years old. Paul Bechtel grew up in eastern Montana during the Dust Bowl and Depression and has fascinating stories about baseball games in the sagebrush, eating sage grouse, and driving from ranch to ranch to measure the volume of stockwater dirt tanks for the federal government. Paul was also a pilot during World War II, deployed in Europe, and we may be able to share those reminiscences in a future episode. He has cut a wide swath in his nearly 100 years, and I'm happy to honor him by offering these stories about childhood on the Western Range in his own voice. My co-host in this interview is Mark Teske, a friend of mine and Paul's, and a wildlife biologist who is interested in sage-grouse, colorful people, and the history of people in the West. In case it's a little hard to pick up at the beginning of the interview, his family moved to southeast Montana from Nebraska by covered wagon in 1914, a 500-mile trip they made in 30 days. They settled northwest of Ikalaka in a spot chosen because it was one of few places that had not yet been homesteaded, and they were out of money, and they had run out of summer, and they had to get situated before winter, and there was some timber there. Here's the recording with Paul. My name is Mark Teske. And uh, we're sitting here uh, doing an interview, April 5th, 2022. And I'm Tip Hudson, and it's the same day as the date for Mark, miraculously. I remember thinking that 2020 was the distant future, the distant future. And I'm not that old, so I'm sure at one point, uh, 2020 looked pretty far into the future for you, Paul. Yes, I'm Paul. I'm uh, Paul Bechtel, and uh, I'm 99 years old, and uh, I, it, I don't know how I got here so quick. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, 99 years old, you've seen a lot of uh, changes in technology over the years. We had Model A's and, and Tesla's in your lifetime and smartphones. So quite a difference. Stagecoaches to spaceships. <laughs> yes. Yes, from uh, a horse and buggy, a saddle horse, to a rocket. <laughs> so what, you were born then in 1921? 23. 23. Mm -hmm. And where were you born? At, uh, on the ranch in... Fifteen miles from Ikalaka, Montana. And That's close to the Dakotas border. Uh, yes, uh, near the Dakota. Yeah, South Dakota border, and uh, very isolated. Um, in the early days, uh, there were lots of people there when the homesteading act was in operation. Mm -hmm. uh, there were. Almost every piece of land uh, had a shack on it and a person there trying to prove up on his new homestead. I think they had to 
build a shack and be and live there for six months, improving the property, fencing it in, and so forth. And when I, my first memories were uh, of uh, just uh, many, many people there, and the great events took place on every weekend. We had uh, they have a dance every Saturday night. They'd uh, just uh, go to one one of the uh, settlers' shacks and take everything out of the out of it, and uh, they would have a dance. People would come from all over the country, be wagons and horseback people, and uh, they would stay all night and usually cook their breakfast in the morning before they went home. And uh, on other occasions, they had picnics on Sunday. And uh, the young fellows would go out and find a, a level spot where you could have a softball game, and uh, and uh, uh, there wasn't cactus or sagebrush or something in the way, and uh, and that, that's where they'd locate for that particular Sunday. And then they would uh, go out and shoot sage hens. There were sage hens were so thick I can't even believe my memories. Uh, the sky was darkened when they took off sometimes, and, and you'd hear them coming like a plane a coming. And you look up, and the sky's black, and it, it flew over you and began to settle, and there'd be sage hen that was, uh, would land on every side of you. And the, and the young ones were usually bright, lighter colored than the older ones. And so on, on these days when they were going to have the picnic, they'd, uh, Young guys would go out and, and shoot the younger sage hens and pull the skin off and dress them right in the field and cut them up. And, and then they'd build a couple of big campfires and they had some big skillets and they'd tie a stick on the handle He'd get it, so I could be away from the fire. And they'd build a couple of fires and start frying the sage hen. And they'd fry literally two washed up heaping full of a sage hen. Mm-hmm. And about that time, then the people start arriving. And uh, by 12, 31 o'clock, why, they'd all be there, and the women would bring uh, potato salad and pies and cakes and all kinds of trimming, homemade buns and all kinds of things, homemade things. And, uh, and uh, we'd eat that chicken, and then they'd have a ball game. And I remember I always eat so much of that chicken. I don't know how in the world anybody ever played ball. I can, so I can that hardly move. in the 1930s? That was uh, in the late 20s. Late 20s. Yeah. Early 30s. And I suppose the early 30s. Yeah. Had my memories. I don't remember exactly the dates, but I know I wasn't very big at the time, so it would probably been in the 20s. When did the family move there? I think there were two different versions of the Homestead Act. The first one was 1862, and I think initially they were offering... 640 acres in the West, and then eventually they realized you couldn't make a living on 640 acres, and well, so it got expanded. Uh, no, it was the other way around. Uh-huh. They uh, they had the home. My, my parents came there in 1914, and they were just at the tail end of the homesteading. Mm-hmm. And they had, they, there was only one place left that hadn't been taken, and it wasn't very good land. Mm-hmm. But they lived there and raised 12 kids on that piece of property and uh, I lived there until 1946 after I got out of the service. Yeah. And, uh, but living was really tough. Uh, 
you know, at that time. And uh, <clears throat> I got a book later on. I, I always wondered about the history, uh, and I'd never seen it uh, published anywhere until after I had left. I mean, back in probably in the 50s or 60s, I heard about a, a, a editor of, an, of a paper in the Seattle area that had taken an interest in the Home City Act and who had gone out there. So he, he had come several summers and spent his summer in, in a motel down in uh, Baker, Montana, which is not far from Eagle. And he just to study the homes. So he'd go down the courthouse and look up the owners for certain areas that he was studying. And then he would uh, find out find out their names and all, all he could have found out about them. And then he would attempt to run them down and find them where they'd moved to mm-hmm. so that he could interview them. And he wrote, he wrote a book. Mm-hmm. And the, book, the title of that book is called Badlands. And uh, it explained why why the Home City Act and, uh, and, and uh, of course, they were putting the railroads through at that time. And the main reason for the Homestead Act was uh, they wanted this railroad to be put through and uh, it took all about it, what the government did. They went back east where the railroads had all been built and there were certain firms or individuals that had been had headed up that work and they knew how to build a railroad and and they didn't know how to organize to get, get it done and so forth. And so the government got together with some of these heads, uh, some of these knowledgeable people, and they made up a brochure. And uh, in order to do that, they were a little deceptive, which the government a lot of times is. And mm-hmm. They went up to in the western Montana, where there's lots of, lots of green grass and, mm-hmm. and nice homes and fenced-in yards and... Yes, and they took shots. pictures. They took pictures of yeah. those, and and they made this brochure up and uh, and uh, and uh, explained how that the land was being homesteaded. It was free. You come, just take it. They've distributed those those, those uh, pamphlets all over the East Coast and even in Europe. Mm-hmm. And people came all the way from Europe to for to get a homestead because it was right at the time when they sort of had. A, Industrial Revolution, and they'd had a downturn, and there were just a lot of people out of work. So, uh, and they thought, boy, it's a way to get, you know, get rich. They come west and get a homestead. So they come west, and uh, and uh, and and the government uh, made a deal with the railroad, this railroad moguls. If they would put the railroad in, they would give them every other section of land within ten miles of it. Each, each side of the railroad right away. Mm-hmm. And uh, because they knew that if they put the railroad in, they had to have some means of, uh, of operating the railroad. Yeah. And uh, so they, and there was, all they had in those days was the steam engines, steam uh, engines on the railroad. And so they had to have uh, uh, refueling points about every 10 miles. Uh, if they water back in, if they're going to haul heavy loads, it took a lot of water and took a lot of uh, coal or wood. I was going to say coal or wood was yeah, used. Yeah. Uh, water. So they come through, the railroad companies come through, the big moguls, and, and then and they, 
designated where there had to be a stop, and they gave it a name. And that's how the, all those little towns in Montana got its names, mm-hmm. was uh, the railroad moguls came through and gave them the names. And so they who stopped. thought of Ikalaka? That, it wasn't at the ra- it wasn't on the railroad. It that was, one wasn't on, okay. It was 32 miles from any railroad and only one road in and one road out mm. that time, uh, way down in the wilderness. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, mm. that, that pamphlet brought people from the East Coast. Some people had quite a bit of money. You know, they come and they build a big fancy house. Mm-hmm. There was one built about a mile and a half from where my folks was home. They built a nice two-story house painted white. had a white picket fence around it. And out in the sagebrush, thinking that they'll get kill a sagebrush and on a farm. And, and uh, so they'd only lived there about two years. And some of the people went by and they saw the curtains flying out the windows or blowing out the windows went over there. Nobody there. They had just determined they couldn't make a living there, so mm-hmm. they just walked off and left everything. And so uh, by the time I was, uh, oh, 12, 14 years old, the people had left to the point where our nearest neighbor was probably five miles, four or five miles. And you go there today, and you can't find trace that anybody was ever there. Mm-hmm. And I know where they were, and I know where homesteads were at, and I know where foundation. They weren't foundations. They put rocks up under the beams, you know. They tried to make it level, and yeah. it was just makeshift. Everything was, and uh, but uh, all the fences now, and all the old trails that they used called roads, you know. There was nothing but trails. Can't find a sign of any of them anymore. So you had enough people out there to have a baseball game. In those days, yeah. In those days, and then just through time. But within 10 years, I wasn't enough yeah, to, yeah. you couldn't have found enough to make a baseball game. But, yeah. but those 10 years were the, I have the best memories, I think, of it all in my whole life. Yeah. It was just a great time. I just kind of marvel at that. It, you know, we think of baseball games as hot dogs. Yeah. And, and you had sage grouse. Yeah. As the, yeah. Uh, sage ham, yeah. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that something? <laughs> game food. Yeah. There's a the WSU used to have a research station up south of Wenatchee here a little ways, and the guy that was there uh, for about 25 years to 30 years, Tom Brandon, says that there are I don't remember several dozen known homesteads just in that there was about an 8,000 acre area that encompassed the uh, the research station, and there were several dozen homestead sites in yeah. that area, and every yeah. one of them starved out. Oh yeah, yeah. There's no way they could make a living even. Even in modern times when they had all the machines, mm-hmm. you still, you know, they couldn't depend. I, when I lived there, I was born and raised there until I was 19, went in the service. I never saw one good year. It just the grasshoppers or the hail or <clears throat> drought or something, freeze, early, or early freeze in the fall or ruin the crops or mm-hmm. something. I mean, it just... I've been back there a couple of times when they did have good years. Boy, the grass stand up that high, you know. But I never saw, never saw one. You could see most years you could see a grasshopper. I mean, you could see a jackrabbit run three miles away from the dust. Yeah, he kicked up. <laughs> so, that's amazing. I uh, recall you uh, purchasing a uh, Model A oh, yeah. with with jackrabbit money. Yeah. Why don't you tell a little bit about that? 
Well, yeah, well, that was when I got out of high school in 41. I uh, had a job first. I got a job. Uh, well, first I got a job uh, for the Soil Conservation Service. That <laughs> was, uh, and uh, they needed people to go and measure the they had the farmers doing things uh, uh, for uh, to, to to preserve the the what you call it the, the land and the and the soil and uh, and to develop the land and and they paid them to put in stock water. Uh, to to put little dams in the in the draws to mm-hmm. to hold the water for stock and so on, and they were pay, <coughs> paid not to put crops in in some cases because uh, like wheat you know it had fluctuated up and down and sometimes wheat would be mm-hmm. it gets so cheap that the farmers couldn't afford to couldn't afford to harvest it. harvest it and so they would they would pay the farmers so much an acre not to plant the wheat. And you have to go out and measure the fields that these people said they had that they weren't planting, and measure the amount of earth that they had they had uh, moved to put into these stockwater dams and so on. And so I took a job to uh, visit uh, the farmers as, as designated by the the conservation office in the town. Uh, so happened that there was a young guy there that was. Uh, he was uh, trying to learn to be a mechanic, and he was working for the only guy in town that had a filling station or any kind of uh, uh, intent to do any repair on the vehicles. And he had a job there working for him, and uh, the guy had a dealership for Dodges there in that little garage. I don't think he sold more than three Dodges a year, maybe if that much, you know. But this kid, because he was working for the dealer, the dealer gave him a let him have one for almost wholesale price. And so he bought this new car, but the kid wasn't making enough to make the payments. So he said, well, if you take that car, he said, and use it, and just pay me a simple little mileage, you can use it. And I think he said, if you make the payments, I forgot not what the deal was exactly. But anyway, I had this brand new Dodge car. <laughs> to go to these farmer's places. And I remember I'd go, go out to the farmer and, and and meet, I was meeting people I'd never seen before because Carter County is a big county there. And, and uh, so I'd go in in the morning and uh, these farmers, you know, they're, they're, they're hungry for, hungry for, for uh, fellowship. They're out to all those, those farms, didn't have a way of getting anywhere. And they're probably three, four months, they'd never see anybody really. Mm-hmm. When you come in there to do this uh, job, they'd be right there watching you and talking to you all the time, starve for fellowship. And so they'd, they'd invite you back for dinner or back for it. And it'd get upset if you didn't come. So I found myself backtracking every every noon and every evening to, yeah. to, to uh, honor an invitation. So, this, so I never had to worry about board, you know, just getting back to the office at night <laughs> and I got enough uh, mileage from them to more than pay them. So I had that job first. <clears throat> so you were just out there with a measuring tape? And, yeah, tape. And, On, uh, you yeah. have a level and what have you. Know. Doing the calculations and going yeah, out your yeah, paperwork? That's all. Yeah, yeah. Very simple it was. Yeah. And uh, hmm. so then uh, I got a job uh, after that I got a job shoveling coal. 
uh, I had a guy there with a little five five ton truck, and Ecolac is uh, thirty two miles from Baker where the railroad was at, and uh, so he'd he'd order a carload, a trained carload of coal, flat car, not a flat car, but the sides are up there, probably four foot higher, five and. And he would have a load of coal come in, a car, a car of coal, and they put it on a siding. And then he'd hire a couple of kids like me to go with him and shovel the coal off the, off the car into the back of the truck. And then we'd have to ride with him back down to Eagle Lake and shovel the coal off into the. <laughs> so I was working at that and I was tough as nails, you know, strong and tough. You knew how to work a shovel. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's another thing, yeah, yeah. But I uh, worked at that uh, for quite a little while, and and then uh, what was the thing we were... Oh, on the jackrabbits? On the jackrabbits. So I got all sort of done with this, and it was in the winter, long, longer than in December, I guess it was, and the rabbit, we'd had a snow, and the rabbits turned white in the fall, when mm-hmm. it snows, jackrabbits, and the jackrabbits turned white, and then the crazy snow went off. And uh, so I was going... I. Uh, First, I, this Model A Ford, I had heard about that Model A Ford. Somebody said he had a guy down there and had a Model A Ford he wanted to sell. And, of course, you couldn't sell anything. Nobody had any money. And so I went and talked to him. I said, what do you want for that Model A Ford? $65. And it was a good Model A Ford. And, and I said, well, I said, I don't have $65 right now, but I got 15 in my pocket, I said, I've been working for this guy doing the coal thing. And uh, and I said, would you take that and let me have the car? I didn't think he would. Yeah, he'd do that. <laughs> so uh, I took that car, and I always had my 22 there. And so I, I thought, well, i got to go home now and show my folks what I did, you know. So I uh, we had about five stock gates that you had to open and drive through and then close. I got to about the third one uh, on the way into the ranch, and I looked up on a, a knob sticking up there, and I saw some white uh, in a sagebrush uh, on the southeast side of the knoll, and the sun was shining. And it, was cold, it was chilly, though, in, the wind, in December, of course, and so I thought, well, that must be rabbit. So I took my twenty-two and walked up there. Sure enough, I plunked him, and, he, and I got to look around. There's another one. Plunked him. By the time I got back to the car, I had 10 rabbits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought, my goodness, what, what are they doing here on this southeast side of the slope? And why? I wonder, there's another knob over there. I wonder if they're doing that over there, too. So I got in the car and I, I was in the sagebrush and went over there, sure enough. And I got another 10. Well, the upshot of the whole thing. And a couple hours later, I went home and I had 85 rabbits in the back of my. I had to get a piece of wire in it. To wire the trunk lid down, <laughs> keep them in there, and I knew that I could get twenty-five cents a piece for them, and that was exactly what an hour's hard labor was—twenty-five cents. And I had—that's what I'd got for shoveling that coal. So I told my mom, "Get me something to eat." I said, "I'm going back to town." That's what she did. I says, "I'll be back." And so I went to town. I sold them rabbits, and got me five gallons more gas in that. Mm-hmm. Old car and I two boxes of shells, twenty-two shells. Come home, got up the next morning. By noon, I had ninety-five rabbits again. So I did that for about three weeks, huh. and I paid for that car, of course, and twenty dollars. 
you know, every day for about three days, I had the car paid for. By the time I got done, I had about $300 in my pocket. Wow. And I tell you, you couldn't make $300. Nobody caught on until it was about, I got I killed about all the rabbits in the country before <laughs> they caught on. And my neighbor, he finally caught on and he run me off of his place. He won him himself. Yeah. And then he come back and apologized. <laughs> so what were they used for? I, I have no idea. And you didn't have to even... No, you just throw so you them. You never skin them. No, it was just the no, just throw them in the car, throw them out. No. I don't know what they did, but they gave you twenty five cents. Anything to do with the war? Well, I'm sure it did, but yeah. I, I don't know what. Yeah. That was in forty one. You see, they were already already fighting at that time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had no idea I'd be going at that time yet. Yeah. <laughs> My mom talks about picking milkweed pods. Yeah. Um, for the war to. Stuff life jackets with, oh, I didn't and know so that. that the the white fluff and yeah. milkweed was uh-huh. they'd stuff a life jacket with it, and it provided enough buoyancy um, for sure. that purpose. So oh, that's yeah. just an interesting early yeah, recollection yeah, of hers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I didn't know that. Of course, we didn't have enough of the milkweed around. Yeah, I used to use it for warts, the milk in the stem. Oh. I don't know whether did you could do it, but I heard it didn't. I had quite a few warts in my hands in those days. I'd put it on there very diligently. You see, see a plant, I'd go and pull the stem off. And <laughs> well, they look good now, so. <laughs> yeah, they're all gone. <laughs> I'm just one big wart now. <laughs> yeah. Huh, what were you, you mentioned the sagebrush. What was the rest of the plant community like? The rest of the what? Plant community. This would be oh, you know, well, mostly yeah. short grass prairie, but I'm curious what well, you remember. Well, the two things that you remember the most are the sagebrush and cactus. Yeah. Cactus was just, the cactus that grew on the ground, you couldn't step anywhere with that. It was just everywhere. Yeah. So no going barefoot. Uh, you know, I got so, uh, my, my folks couldn't afford shoes in the summer. I had one, they got one pair a year. You get them in the year when you start to school. And by the time you're done, active kid like I was, your toes are sticking out and, uh, and you just took your shoes off and went barefooted. I got so I got calluses, a quarter inch thick on the bottom of my feet. I could walk right in the cactus, but if you so didn't get around the sides, you know. <laughs> but I could. I, and the rocks are nothing bothering me. Right. But I, you have to get your shoes two, three sizes bigger in the fall because your feet had. If you develop that cat in the callus, you know, swell up on you. <laughs> right. I was just looking this morning at a ecological site description from that part of the country and the the section on climatic features said that, that this continental climate is characterized by cold winters, hot summers, low humidity, light rainfall, and much sunshine, and extremes yeah. in temperature are typical. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. They said there are a few natural barriers on the northern Great Plains and the winds move freely across the plains and account for rapid changes in temperature. Seasonal precipitation is often limiting for plant growth. And that describes what you were saying. Every year was different and none of them were good. Yeah, that's right. It was just, uh, uh, in, in my experience, there were, you do have periodically, and this was, this was a, kind of a deception. When they first started the Homestead and Shedding Act, uh, there was some good years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the grass grew tall, you know, and uh, people were really enthused. And uh, there was probably four, five, six years there when they really had good weather and 
comes in cycles, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they put, they put the railroad through, and and uh, and uh, it seemed like they were everything was going just the way the brochure had spelled it out, you know. And, mm -hmm. And so the banks come in, bankers come in these little spots, and they put, started banks, and they began to loan these people, these homesteaders, money to buy big equipment because they had pipe dreams about plowing the country up and planting wheat or crops, you know, making a fortune. And so uh, they, they loaned them money, and they bought these great big tractors and things. And I remember... One puzzle that uh, when I grew up, I never did find the puzzle. And so the puzzle nobody knew, uh, but in a draw, kind of out of sight, you didn't see it until you got there. There was a great big old uh, steam-driven tractor. I mean, a great big tank on the thing, wheels seven feet high, uh, just totally out of place out there. How in the world did that get there? Nobody knew where it came from. Mm -hmm. But when I read this book that the guy wrote. The answer was in that. It was these bankers that come in and loan the people money to buy the big heavy equipment to really tear the ground up, you know. And then about the time they got the tractors, why the, the rain went away. And so they just had no way of paying for it. I'm sure somebody had lost a lot of, a lot of money on that. But, but the, the rancher, if the, the banker, if he was unwise enough to loan the money to some of those people, he he lost it, you know. Yeah. Or if the money, if the, if the rancher had money enough to buy it, he lost it. Somebody lost it. That's, so you spent spent quite a bit of time on a horse. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that was uh, oh man, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours. <laughs> so you guys had livestock and not crops, or some of both. Oh, oh no, we had uh, we had uh, we tried to grow everything we. You find a little spot, a level spot uh, that looked like it. You got the sagebrush off it, might grow something. We, we uh, my dad had uh, several, quite a few acres that he planted. He planted wheat and he planted corn and and so on. But the but the ground was uh, hard pan. You know, it's bentonite you buy for put in the canals to give them from mm -hmm. uh, That land that my dad got was. Uh, about half of it was um, puddles. It'd be, oh, maybe five, six feet wide and eight, ten feet long. And they'd be flat as a, I mean, just absolutely flat. And if it rained, if it rained a half an inch, that half inch of water would be right there. It wouldn't go in the ground. Because that bentonite, that whole thing was bentonite. And that, that water would sit there until it evaporated. And you could take a knife after it was gone and go down. That water wouldn't soak in the ground over that far. Wow. And all that time. It, it, and about half the land he had was that kind of ground. Wow. And he didn't worry about it. He'd just go ahead and get, because there'd be sagebrushes growing around these ponds, you know, where the soil is a little better, I guess. And he'd just plow the whole thing up, and there'd be patches in the field where you couldn't hardly get anything to grow because of that soil. But then there'd Patches where it would grow pretty good, so it was just a patchwork kind of farming that we did. And uh, and I remember we used to didn't have any machinery. I can remember on the corn where my dad would make a stone boat. You know what a stone boat is? Mm -hmm. It's a thing you drag behind a horse, 
put a couple of timbers, and then you have cross timbers. And uh, he, we had one old horse that would go down down the row of corn, and my brother would be on one side, and my dad would take a and cut the corner of the stone boat off on a forty-five degree angle, and he'd take an old plowshare and sharpen it up good and put it fasten it there on both sides. And my brother and I'd have that old horse start him down the aisle and grab the stalks of corn like this, and then cut the thing and cut it off, stack it between us. And as soon as we got enough for a shock, we'd stop the horse and, and set up a shock, tie it up, and then we'd get back on the stone boat. That's how we harvested our corn. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, it was this, the corn was still in the in the stalk, you know. So we'd uh, take that and stack just stack it like you would hay. And then in the winter we'd go out and uh, and uh, we'd feed the Stalks and the leaves, or dried up leaves, to, to the animals, and uh, and take the corn and husk it and shell it out. Take a head of sheller and we shell that and and, and uh, crack it the best we could for the chickens and the birds and so on. That's how we that's how we kept the animals going. And it would it would be enough. Uh, the animals or the birds wouldn't uh, wouldn't deplete it. And we had in those days you had grouse, lots of grouse. Yeah. You get up, you set a trap, a couple of traps on the top of the corn stack, and then one you have grouse for dinner. For dinner. And, uh, so they would sit on it and eat it, and, and you guys would get them. Oh yeah, they you get in a trap and you yeah. trap one door. So on the cold, real cold winter mornings, we had some trees on our creek along the that were pretty good high trees and. And you go out there in the morning, it was uh, 10 below or 20 below, and you look, and there'd be grouse in that tree. And if you, very carefully, they wouldn't fly. They, they were cold. They weren't fly. It was cold. You know? So you, you go out, and you, you could put, you could get fairly close to the tree, and they, they would just sit there. And, but you find the, the the one at the bottom, the bottom one. You shoot the bottom one, they, they all sit there. If you got one above the bottom one, the other one would fly, and then they'd all follow him. But if you if you just followed up and get the bottom one each time, you'd get as many as you wanted for dinner. <laughs> Done that many times. <laughs> Were those sharp-tailed grouse? You know? Uh, were they kind of white when they flushed their tail feathers? Yeah, no, I, they were pretty good sized grouse. Yeah, but not sage grouse. They were a different type. Uh, no, a sage hen is yeah. that's a whole different. Yeah, 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 yeah. they're 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 a bigger bird. Yeah. 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 They, they, the sage, the grouse don't do that. Yeah. 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 I was thinking that yeah, they're not tree nesters or tree yeah. roosters. Yeah. Uh, typically. So. Yeah. Lots of memories back there. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. That period of time seemed to have been, it looked like you came in at the right in the middle of a series of, you know, natural disturbances that were bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, right there was the, the decade-long drought yeah, that, that's right. that caused the Dust Bowl. And then after that, I think there was a period of time that was um, unusually cold. Even, even in this part of the country, people yeah, that yeah, lived here said that in the, in the 1940s and 50s, there were lots of winters that were cold enough that they had ears and tails falling off cattle. And we haven't had that oh, kind yeah, of weather. Yeah, I've seen it, I've seen it uh, 30 below for 30 days mm-hmm. back there in those days. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it has warmed up. I don't believe in global warming like the 
people are pushing nowadays, but it's just the cycles of things that go through. What yeah. did you had cattle then? What did they eat in the wintertime? Uh, that was a problem a lot of times. So the corn that I've been talking about was part of it. Right. And we put the corn up. Anything we anything would get salvaged. They had a few little little places down below. We had a creek that meandered down. That it was a dry creek. It's unless unless you got a cloud burst above or rain above, then it would come down through there. But uh, it didn't run. There was no springs in it to, mm-hmm. to keep it running. Uh, so, uh, but we had some big holes there that would retain water for quite a long time, and and uh, so, but these little meadows that they had, it's just very small meadows, but the, because of the spring runoff and so on, it would come down the creek, snow runoff, and it would seep in and water the little meadows in there, and, and that's what my dad, every little dinky piece of ground down at the, at the creek level we we, we put up hay on it. Mm. and uh, scattered all up and down the creeks and quite a job getting it in but <laughs> just enough extra moisture there to yeah just enough the uh, yeah, yes, yeah something tall enough to cut yeah and uh, mm. it, it never was a real lush time for the stock you know it, uh, it was tough so on your time on horseback and, and just uh, generally living out there, um, deer, antelope around? No, the people had eaten all the deer and antelope. Yeah. I never, hardly saw one in all the time I lived there. I went back, uh, oh, it's been 30 years ago, a little bit longer than that. Uh, I went back about 40 years ago, I guess, uh, back down to the old place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, my Folks have been gone about 75 years there now. I went back down there, right to where the old place was at. You could hardly recognize things, you know. But, but uh, I saw there was deer and antelope down in there at that time, and mm-hmm. wild turkeys. Oh, for heaven's sake, yeah. But we, there was nothing like that in there when we were. They'd have been eaten if they'd been there. Yeah. Because there was no game laws, you know. Mm-hmm. And by the time I left there, you couldn't hardly find a sage here. But that was another thing that would cause that. Uh, they brought the, the China pheasant in. Hmm. When they brought the China pheasant in, the China pheasant uh, sought out and destroyed the nests of all sage hens and grouse. Hmm. So hardly anything, any grouse or sage hen found there anymore. But the, but the sage hen army, but the Chinese pheasant is doing well. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah. So I was uh, um, recalling too about uh, picking up bones off the prairie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. I uh, uh, see. I had ridden that prairie from wrangling horses and cattle and so on for years, and and I had and not deliberately, but sort of mentally. Yeah, you, know, you do. You remember where there was a pile of bones and. Yeah. I had remembered where those bones were at, and, and when I got done with that rabbit thing, uh, I knew there were the government wanted bones too. I suppose they were making fertilizers. I don't know what they were doing out of it, but uh, I thought, well, here's another thing I can. I was in '41 again, uh-huh. and uh, I must have picked up uh, probably a hundred buffalo heads with horns still on it, or skulls, you know. 
I sold them for a hundred dollars now. Yeah. I just threw them in the trailer and sold them by the ton. <laughs> I got about, uh, uh, well, you know what the old lumber wagon was, a white box about that wide and about that deep with the sideboards on it. Then about, what, uh, 10 feet long, 8 feet long, something, I don't know, something like that. And I got probably three, four loads of them, solid loads, and called them the railroad and sold them. And I, I didn't make a lot of money on them, but I made probably, probably made $20, $30 a load. Uh, I forgot now what I got out of it. And you, and you transported them where? To what town? I had to go to the railroad down to Baker. Oh, in Baker. Yeah. yeah. Had a, had a Model A Ford, I put a hitch on the back, and my dad had a an old trailer that he used. To, I think it had a horse trailer in it, but it rigged up a hitch to put on the back of the car. And I used that old Model A Ford in that trailer over the hills through the cactus beds everywhere. And the uh, time I got down to that old Model A Ford in about a year's time, it wasn't worth much. <laughs> <laughs> Were those skulls from recently... Buffalo, recently uh, living buffalo that had died of natural death, or were they old skulls? And no, they were, were, they were old white. Yeah, they were well yeah. weathered. Yeah. Were there any living buffalo no. at the time? I never, no. Yeah. No, that would all, the only, the only way you knew there had been buffalo, buffalo in the country is, uh, mm-hmm. is the skeletons out there. Yeah. Yeah. Were there many other people when you were taking them to the railroad? Or were you the, no, not, you didn't no, see other folks bringing? Not that I know. Yeah. Most people wouldn't subject their cars to that sagebrush and cactus. <laughs> I went down there since, and I I wanted to go up to my uh, the old school was at. We had we walked three miles to school over the hills, and we had kind of wore a trail, you know, through the cactus and mm-hmm. over the sagebrush and so on. Uh, and uh, but there would have been a a road where the old Horses and lumber wagon, and uh, all they had in those days to get back and forth. And, and I knew where they went, sort of, you know, but by the time I got there at that time, the, the roads were pretty well eliminated. Mm-hmm. And uh, if there was a gully, I mean, if there was a washer, uh, a, a heavy uh, downpour, they would have washed the trail out and made a gully out of it or something, you mm-hmm. know. But, I started out and I looked at that and I thought, no, goodness sakes, this, these tires will never stand that. <laughs> so I backed off. Mm-hmm. Never got up there. So it's interesting to go back there and just see things, you know, but there's not a soul alive that I know in there more. They're, oh. all, mm-hmm. they're, all, they're all up on Boot Hill. I go up on Boot Hill. Well, I know everybody there. <laughs> Even the old, I was, uh, I was uh, on the old undertaker's assistant when I was in high school for, mm. for a while, and uh, even he's up there now. Would you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So every time I go back east, I go back east every year to pheasant hunt. Oh yeah. And we go just north of that uh, uh, through, through Plevna. Oh, yeah, it's played as Baker. And then Baker. Yeah, yeah. And then into North Dakota. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've just thought about I, uh, venturing south 
Yeah. And uh, checking out that part of the world. Yeah. Yeah, he's not told not to check out over there. <laughs> Ekalak is still there as a town? Yeah, it's shrunk down. Though. It's really yeah. shrunk down. It's uh, only about 300 people now, I think. And there was about 1,000 when I was together. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, you know, they just, I don't know how in the world the 300 make a living there. Mm -hmm. The people that, uh, I guess that land where, in that whole area where I was lived, uh, there's a guy by the name of, uh, the, what was the circus? Uh, Barnum Bailey, Bar Ringling, Ringling Brothers. Ring, Ring, Ringling Brothers, yeah. Yeah. The Ringling Brothers owns probably all that land. It just mm -hmm. lays there. That, I don't know if they do anything with it. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, there was one farmer that was there when I went in to see the old place, and he had it kind of roped off, and I had had quite a time getting permission from him to to go in. He didn't want me to go in there and finally he got to be ask, asking me questions and I, I guess the answer is he, he, he finally said, oh, he says, I can't keep you from going in there. Go in. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in and I had a little camper on my pickup and I went and Joyce and I went in and stayed overnight there. Yeah. I got up in the morning and I looked up the, up the canyon, up the creek and there was some black up there looked like a bear from where I was. I couldn't figure out what in the world is that moving around up there. So I kept watching, kept watching. And pretty soon the thing started coming down our direction, and uh, and so I, we said, "Let's get in the camper," you know, so we don't spook whatever it is. And so I got in the camper and it kept coming closer and closer. There was an old gobbler whose head is strutting around, you know. I <laughs> couldn't see very good. Got my glasses out and looked, and, and uh, this old gobbler was three gobblers and, and one hen. And they come down to see that. They're a curious bird, you know. And here they saw this camper down there, and it, it hadn't been there before. I imagine I kind of see what's going through. They got a mind. It, and so they come down, and they walk, circle the camper a time or two, just looking that thing over. <laughs> Then they went off and went out of sight in a draw and it's not very long. So were there plenty of coyotes around or foxes? No, they had them pretty well killed out. Interesting. My older brothers helped kill them out. Yeah. Yeah. Was it shooting? Yeah, they poisoned. It was it was shooting. Yeah. Later on, I'm sure they poisoned them, but but in the days I was there they didn't do that. My my brothers that was a big sport for them, you yeah. know. You shot them for hides or just because they were a pest on the livestock? It just, mainly just to say, I got one. You know, yeah. <laughs> kind of a, it was kind of a contest in the community. Yeah. Everybody knew about it. Right. You got something like that, that little bracket, bracket issue, you know. Mm -hmm. but no but, foxes that you were calling? I never, no, never saw a fox. No. And prairie dogs? Yeah, there were prairie dogs, but they, they, uh, uh, they had them pretty well eliminated yeah. before I left there. They they poisoned them. Yeah. And uh, uh, but they 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 were kind of dangerous if you're riding a horse. You know, a uh, horse could uh, break a leg. Yeah. Step in a hole and break a leg. With a, and the rider didn't do very well then either. That's true. So they uh, yeah, that was a place that prairie dog uh, town. I guess we call them prairie dog town. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very far from our house, mm -hmm. and, and uh, 
the I think the government gave poison to put out for them. And first thing you know, there weren't any. And I don't know. There's not very many of those left now. They've gotten rid of most of them. Yeah, they're trying to bring some of them back in places. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of fun though. Though I had an old couple uh, that lived in Nikolak, and my my parents knew them, kind of friendly with them. They took us. Uh, my, my parents went to visit them one time. When I was pretty small. They took me along, and this family had about four or five little prairie dogs in the house. They had to, they got them when they were babies, mm-hmm. and they were just like little dogs. Mm-hmm. And they were afraid of you all, you know, bark at you. <laughs> you heard about that long, about that high. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I remember that. Mm-hmm. That impressed me. <laughs> yeah. And I remember they got the first airplane they got in the town. That's uh, when uh, I don't remember exactly what the date was, but it must have been when I was about twelve years old, something like that. The first planes were coming out, kind of, and, and, uh, and uh, so there was a couple of people in the town that had little money, and they thought, "My goodness, we ought to get one of them. We could take people for rides, and we could we could uh, we could make some money with them, with the airplane." So they picked one of the young men in the town that uh, seemed to be interested and they sent him to learn to fly. And they got this airplane and they didn't have any airport, but they had a pasture out there outside of town. A little bit of rise on it all, you know. Mm-hmm. He, he managed to get it in there and out and fly around there. But pretty soon he crashed it. That was the end of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Into the plane and him or just the plane? No, he, he made it. He, he, he left it. But, but uh, Pretty tricky not to fly one of them. You know, they didn't have much uh, spring in the wheels in those days. Uh-huh. Uh, like they have nowadays, they got ways of taking out the shock and so on, but they didn't have that stuff in those days. Yeah. Kind of like coming down the, in the lumber wagon. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, I didn't, I'm not sure I read far enough in your book to find out when you left Montana. Uh, well, I left Montana uh, when I went into service. Yeah, okay. I come back and my dad had uh, he had the idea that he'd give me the farm and I come back. But, uh, you know, my experience there was he wasn't giving me much. <laughs> <laughs> and besides, I figured if, if if I'd have taken the farm from him, he wouldn't have gone very far in that. Mm-hmm. And he would have been overseeing and trying to tell me what to do. And wouldn't, it wouldn't work out very well, so... I told him no. I said uh, the government has offered to put me through school, and I'm going to take it up, take him up on it. You said you were the second youngest. Uh, yeah. How old would he have been then when you left going to service? How old was he? Yeah. Uh, he would have been uh, 15. When so I was your, your father. Oh, my father. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand the question quite. I'm wondering. Uh, yeah, you were saying he probably needed to continue farming because he wouldn't have a lot of other options. How oh, he was he? he was 62. When you went in the service. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking he had to be quite well, a bit He was 62 years. when I got out of the service. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I, uh, my my older brother had been in the service also, and he got out a little, I got out of the service a little bit before I did. Mm. 
So when I decided to do this, he wanted to go with me. So the two of us went. Uh, he was he was a radio technician, and he was gonna he had been repairing radios. It was quite a thing in those days. And so he was gonna continue that. So but he went with me, and was gonna do that in the, in the town we were in. And when he saw me bringing the books home, he got to looking at him. I'm going to go register. <laughs> so he went register, and he went through college too. Mm-hmm. He became an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, three months after that incident, where, we, where I went off to school, that was in January of '46. Uh, My folks uh, got busy and had a big sale and sold a the farm and mm. and then they called me and wanted me to come and drive them to California. Mm. So I stopped what I was doing for a bit and come and drove them down there and my brothers were building houses down there and so they built them a brand new house. My mom thought she'd gone to heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure. She only lived three years after that. But, wow. But uh, she uh but she had a new house. Didn't think she'd ever have such a thing. <laughs> like they were camped out down there in Montana all them years, you know, 32 uh-huh. years. Camped out. Both of them got old while they were there. Yeah. Tough years, tough times. Yeah, that's a lot of Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.